Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Brian McKenzie is the best-selling author of numerous books, including one of my favorites titled Unplugged. I first met Brian as he spoke at our 2017 Revitalize event about the power of our breath. Since then, I've been hooked on his Instagram as he is quite simply one of the best in the world when it comes to harnessing the power of our respiratory system to accelerate and raise both mental and physical performance. He's worked with world-class Olympic and professional athletes, top executives, and he's also here to help those suffering from various chronic and pathological issues. And today, we're going to go deep on the power of our breath. Brian, welcome. So good to uh, see you and hear your voice. Jason, the pleasure is all mine, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. So I've been thinking a lot about you in the context of COVID-19 and the importance mm-hmm. of breath work and breathing in a mask, which I just am not good at and, and, we'll, and we'll segue to later. Um, you know, so let's start with breath work and, and your passion for breath work and, mm-hmm. you know, how you evolved from, you know, CrossFit endurance to, you know, there's a hot, there's a hot word right now. I I know (laughs) CrossFit, God, another conversation. Uh, But, but, you know, I think so many people tend to think as we think about like being fit, we we think about, you know, being physically fit. Okay. Running gym, yoga, CrossFit, what have you now uh, being mentally fit is entered into the conversation with the mental health crisis. People are meditating, they're practicing mindfulness, but we're not really talking about our respiratory system. So, you know, why, why breath work uh, for you and, and talk about your, your passion for the power of the respiratory system? Um, I, I think the easiest way to look at it is I, saw an opportunity 20 years ago with, with passion, right? Like I was doing, like I had so many different jobs. Like, I mean, I first, I was detailing car. I actually swept floors for a jet ski place. And then I was like, I detailed cars with a friend was in the restaurant industry, bus tables, weighted tables, managed a restaurant, like blah, 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 blah. I took a class on exercise science and it spin my head in the opposite direction. It was the first time I really cared about like school in any capacity. I got C's on purpose. Like I did enough school to just get by, right? So I got enamored very early on with performance, but that forced me to understand biology. Now, I don't have a degree in biology, so I don't fine tune it down to that much, but I have a global, a pretty good understanding and have studied biology for 20 years to some degree and i was first introduced to like just spinning things on their head or really um going in pivotal opposite directions very early on in my career because somebody challenged what i was thinking about injury and what i thought about that and how i dealt with it and it changed in one weekend and so i was enamored with human movement in that just by changing the dynamic of what we do with movement, things would change. Move this along to about seven years ago where somebody handed me a training mask and I laughed because I had already been studying elevation for quite some time and and trying to understand uh, how we adapt to higher elevations because I was involved in endurance sports and getting things adapted that way. And I knew that the mask, although the claim was elevation training mask, was about elevation i was like that doesn't change pressure and so i knew that oxygen levels weren't really changing but i put the mask on anyway when i put the mask on i did this and i sat up where i was sitting and i sat up because i organized my spine so that my rib cage had more access to my diaphragm and in that split second my entire world changed again because I understood that applying resistance against the diaphragm forced my system to self-organize in order to do something. So I entered into this world where I was just enamored with 
breathing at first because I was like, wait a second, I could just put an athlete in this or a client and I wouldn't have to yell at them about changing their position because they're just automatically like going to change their position so they can breathe. And so it, it just, it, 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 you know, it just started to spin me out. And then I started studying the physiology of, of, of ventilation and how that directly impacted respiration, which refers to cellular respiration, right? Um, and then I got more involved in the neurobiological standpoint of things because I continued to get challenged on things and it pushed me to go understand and learn more. Um, and then I, I, I just, I, I invested myself in this so much that I, I played with varying methodologies, ideas. Uh, I had a background in yoga, although I never paid attention to the fact that at the foundation of the yoga, all yoga practice is a breathing practice. So it's not only the oldest movement practice, but it's one of the oldest breath practices, right? And what were they saying there in Sanskrit and, you know, all of these things that were like kind of compounding into this world that I had existed in and nobody that I saw or, or dealt with was talking about this. And I was like, wait a second, I think we're missing something here. Like fundamentally, like these yoga people have been screaming this for like 5,000 years. Like you follow your breath into position and this is, and I'm like, oh my God, like it, it just started really like making more and more sense. And then when I really started extrapolating things that are used maybe in yoga or even in martial arts to some degree, because those, you know, like Tai Chi and a lot of the martial arts also use breath, breath control. It became very obvious that there was this thing that was impacting people that we weren't, that we were very dysfunctional with. And it makes sense because we're dysfunctional on our movement patterns. And so breathing became, for me, the epicenter of everything. Everything about our life revolves around breathing, whether we like that or statement or not. And it does because the deal was made 2.5 billion years ago for oxygen and multicellular organisms organizing to use that. And the only way that we are able to use that system 90% of our energy is convert is is used with oxygen right through a, a process called beta oxidation or aerobic metabolism okay that is dealt with by the air that i move in and out of my lungs i have no other way of doing that and so my my movement patterns have to organize as such my physiology has to match what is opt what i should be optimally doing and then my neurobiological component of it is it just so happens that my respiration, my, my ventilation centers are all set up in the brainstem. So they're a, part of, they're a part of this autonomic system that sends out signals and is right there. And we have control of that system. And it's the only one we actually have control over. And so as we think about our physical health, our mental health, you'd say respiratory health, is the greatest of all of them because it directly impacts your physical health and your mental health and, and can make you better better fit uh would you would you agree with that statement that if we're going to focus on one thing it's like i used to say for example years ago i would say hey if you if you only if you don't have time you only have time for one practice i suggest yoga because yoga is the best of everything in my in my humble opinion years ago mm. yeah, so, yeah. Would you say well, something similar about focusing on respiratory health and breath work? Yes. To now, there's subtle, like, look, by the time the world catches up to this, and they're starting to, we're, we're going to move past it. Because there's, there's something, there's, there's something more to it. Like breathing's not, ventilation, and like our breathing is not the answer. It's just a tool, Right. We're just so removed from what's out there, meaning the wild, that we call it nature when we are nature. And we, we, we forget that and we use it in our language a lot. And, and that really separates us from really coming back home to what we really are, which is we're a part of this entire ecosystem. 
And just because we built houses and buildings and things and cars and all of that doesn't mean that we're not still connected. But the fact is, is we're dysfunctional in that our lifestyles, and we can all attest to this, that we've taken on, we sit too much. Um, we, we, we're the convenience of food options, the convenience of our lives, you know, all of these things have consequences. I'm not saying they're bad. They just have consequences. And if we get wrapped up too much in that things become dysfunctional. And so by and large, that's why more than 80% of the population we'd suggest has a dysfunctional breathing pattern. So when we look at any sort of disease in research that has respiration or, or, or ventilation rate attached to it, you're going to always see double, if not triple the amount of ventilation rate that is going on with somebody and disease. So that in turn alludes to the fact that this now breathing is not the answer. Okay. That is not what I'm saying. Breathing is a signal and it's instantaneous. Whereas heart rate is kind of late to the game and we're very enamored with heart rate, right? Like heart rate's great, but heart rate's just an intensity marker. It has nothing to do. I mean, how many of us are looking at our heart rate to, to, to garner calories, right? And heart rate actually has nothing to do with your calorie burn. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> so 80% of us aren't breathing properly. Roughly, yeah. So it begs the question... This yeah. is where this is where with, with you know I brought up COVID and masks. I'm like, oh man, I'm doing it all man. wrong. I hate the masks. Like I gotta this, talk. I gotta talk to. I gotta talk to Mackenzie. We gotta do an man. article about this. Man. So like, how at, at the highest level, how are how are what are we doing wrong? And then how should we be breathing just on a daily basis, walking up and down the street? And then we can talk about like how, yeah. how, how should we breathe Fundam in masks fund too. Fundamentally, the easiest thing we can do. And and look, there's there. This is what's frightening. So a good friend of mine, James Nestor, just put out a book, Breathe, and the Lost Art. It's like the lost art of this uh, of this thing that we missed, right? It, it, it's fantastic book, um, and and he's done as much work as I have, except from the journalistic standpoint, to a large degree. And there are so very few people, even in the medical world, that are actually that actually truly understand this. It's frightening, right? But the nose was designed with the respiratory system in mind. The mouth is a secondary system. So the fundamentally, to answer your question, let's start with understanding that difference. What I didn't say was you can't breathe out of your mouth. But I would I I I can confidently say that at least 80% of your day, even your training, should be through your nose only. And there is so much compounding research that is now alluding to this. It has in the past, but nobody's connecting the dots. But I mean, if we if we were to do a meta-analysis like on all this stuff, I, I could just solidify what I'm talking about. But the fact is, I don't have the actual time to do that. We're working on a lot of this stuff, but it's so evident. And now, I mean, look, th with the latest research, especially on the, on the nose microbiome coming out, it's like, look, I deal with people who have sinus issues and things and trouble who are dealing with this. But the reason we harp on the idea of this is the fundamental issue is what we, be what we believe is how we handle CO2. Because CO2 is at the heart of why we breathe. We have a lot of dedication in the system to carbon dioxide sensory. They're called chemoreceptors. And on the brain stem, we have multiple regions that pick up carbon dioxide levels. By and large, most of those detection systems are from the aortic and the carotid arterial systems. Like not well, arteries, right? So the carotid and and uh, aortic arteries have these systems. That's important to understand because our arteries is nutrients going out. Okay, so blood flow is going peripheral. This suggests, from a brain perspective, that a relationship has to be developed to this molecule. Because it's a prediction system. 
It's not an actually what happened system. So as my brain detects carbon dioxide, I'm signaled to breathe. What's at the heart of why we take a breath? Carbon dioxide. What happens if I have you hold your breath too long? You go into a panic switch, right? This is every single human being has this panic switch. It just, it just means the time, like how tolerant we are to carbon dioxide tells us when that's going to happen. And, and we vary, but by and large, we are a society globally that is CO2 intolerant and we, which, which creates an, a reactivity. So with inside the physiology, it signals for me to breathe with inside the psychology. It also signals for me when to breathe because when I have a thought that crosses paths with things, right. And goes on. Well, when I have an emotional response to a thought that triggers a mechanism that is very deep lying in the neurobiology and creates that relationship towards how I breathe. So it, it, it's an, it, it's a mechanical, a physiological and a neurobiological issue. So at the highest level, what's so bad about breathing through your mouth and what's so good about breathing through your nose? Like if you were to yeah. sum it up, you're in the elevator with someone and you're like, don't breathe that way. Yeah. Breathe this way. Here's why. Um, higher stress. You're going, so it's a signal for sympathetic tone instantaneously, right? So sympathetic tone meaning survival mode, fight, flight, freeze. And in today's modern world, that means I'm right, you're wrong, fight, flight, <laughs> I ghost, I, I ghost or I'm dissociative, right? I, I exit, I don't, you know, I just, I, I don't even have, you know, I shut down and then you know, being sheep, like I just get in line and follow along and like, I don't have an opinion submissive to the whole thing. Right. It's not, there is a bear around that corner. Right. Although there are plenty of people who do experience those in the wild and do these things. That is kind of where we're at within our world. And so when I breathe through my mouth, that is a signal for more sympathetic tone. And that is a signal that is set up in the brainstem, Right. And from a physiological standpoint, I offload large amounts of carbon dioxide. So if I'm breathing through my mouth, if I offload carbon dioxide, I don't actually, that is unnecessary, okay? Don't look at this as like I'm doing some sort of, you know, maximum amount of push-ups right now and I need to breathe through my mouth. There's a metabolic demand that's associated with that. When there is no metabolic demand associated with needing to mouth breathe, I instantaneously switch my metabolic state over to more carbohydrate and more anaerobic process, which leans more towards sympathetic activity because the oxygen is no longer bioavailable when I offload excessive carbon dioxide. So when you're, when you're breathing through the nose, you are more likely to activate the parasymp the parasympathetic nervous system, the relaxation response. So you're just going to be in a, a, a better, less reactive, more relaxed state, if you will. Correct. Correct. You give your parasympathetic nervous system the opportunity to come online. So the inhale is sympathetic in nature, right? That is sympathetic. The exhale becomes inhibition of sympathetic which allows for that parasympathetic tone to come on but the it's that extension or longer exhale it's also coupled with the fact that here's the difference between my inhale and exhale or inhales with nose and mouth right very fast with that mouth right there's not a whole lot of difference in absorption rate doing either one okay when i do that now, when I exhale, that's a full exhale with my nose. Here's one with my mouth. There's a big difference. Massive difference. Yeah. And that is where it is because the yin and yang now comes into play. If I want to use oxygen through beta oxidation or aerobic metabolism, I have to have enough carbon dioxide present in the red blood cell in order to make it 
to, for it to leave and to perfuse the cell to be used with inside the mitochondria. When we overbreathe, which is what most of us are by and large doing, we don't give that an opportunity. So we lean the stress side of things more here. Some people naturally do this. They just shut their mouths they, and their mouths are closed all the time. Like you're doing right now. Like you're, you know, you're, you're well, breathing I'm, I'm through. So, I'm so self-conscious. You know, what I, I, I had to do my own prep for you, Brian. I'm like, I got to yes. show up with the mouth closed. Well, I mean, and that's the simplest <laughs> thing. And that's, and like, look, so this is how easy a breath practice is to start. Let's first start at the foundation. Let's understand the difference between nose and mouth breathing. Be more aware of shutting your mouth throughout your day. You really want to take this to the next level. All exercise, all movement strategies, anything you're doing, yoga, CrossFit, I don't care what you're doing, shut your mouth for the next four weeks. Don't allow yourself to go any further. Once you've done that, then start to understand where the intensity factors play in, into that. But the fact is, is that's where you can take that to a new level. And it's like now when I'm in situations that might get heightened, I mean, there's there's a good damn reason why I'm when I talk, I start to turn on <laughs> like I am offloading. There are, there are consequences for what it is I'm doing. I get into a heightened arousal state, right? And then when I stop talking, I bring my breathing back down. So it's as easy as just being conscious when you, when you, when you can be of how you're breathing. And if you notice, Hey, breathing through the mouth, tighten it up. You know, notice it, yep. move forward and just, and just as you go through your day, am I breathing through my mouth? Am I breathing through my nose? And if you notice mm -hmm. it, okay, no big deal. Well, let's bring it back to the nose. Bring it back do to the I nose. Need, do I need to actually breathe through my, my mouth right now? And I mean, I think the biggest, the biggest difference here besides CO2 tolerance is the fact that this is the greatest filter of air we have. This is the first line of defense for the immune system. This has very, very few immune system plays with it. So you bring up two interesting points. Uh, one is the immune system, and and, and then uh, you can't talk about the immune system and not talking about COVID. And so Correct. I'll start with the first one. Where, where, where I started to think about you quite a bit was COVID-19 world, you got to wear a mask. And I, 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 hate, I hate wearing the masks, but they're a new reality. And part, part, I, I, would, I would struggle breathing. I'm like, oh, I just don't like this. And then you were putting out some great stuff on your Instagram about breathing through a mask. So can you talk about why are people having challenges breathing through masks and how should we breathe through a mask? Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately for a lot of us, it's like coming to the gym for the first time and, and wanting to deadlift 400 pounds, right? <laughs> Where it's like, hey, if we could just start somewhere, it's going to have an effect. There, th there's some hacks that we can work on and, and, and talk about here. But the reason many of us are having a problem is because of being CO2 intolerant. Because the mask, like that training mask that I first put on, what those do is they trap carbon dioxide. So when I inhale air, there's 21% oxygen. Most of that oxygen comes back out when I exhale. Most of it. So it's not a lack of oxygen that's coming in. It becomes carbon dioxide that's now mixing in the surface. There, it's really difficult to create a toxic environment with a mask with carbon dioxide. But this is a dose-dependent thing. Meaning, if I am C very CO2 intolerant, I am going to probably be dealing with more of a toxic shock to CO2 than, say, me, right? I've got doctors. I've got, I've got some people who are fin fish, finishing up residency that I mentor, um, I work with, who have never expressed any problems with wearing masks. And they wear them all day long, right? Then I hear about others who do. And, 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 you know, I don't know what their daily practice is like, but I can, I can validate that I don't have a problem wearing a mask at all. I don't like wearing it, but I do, you know, I, I, I don't have a problem wearing it. It does seem to be constrictive, but the fact is, is it's, 
that that's part of that trigger system that's going on in the brain and where the relationship's developing towards what I'm doing. And this is where the intricacy of understanding psychology and neurobiology and physiology intersect is, and that's what we really are teaching people. And that's why I was suggestive of when people catch on to the breathing thing, we're going to move over. <laughs> but the fact is, is it's all intersected. And so let's get it, let's get down to the foundation of this and understand if I have a problem wearing a mask and I'm starting to have panic or I'm starting to have difficulty, the best thing you can do is get outside somewhere safe, remove the mask and take a few or many deep breaths through your nose. You will instantly come and calm back down. I mean, there's a reason why we used to hand people paper bags when they were having panic attacks to, to breathe in. Well, it's, I'm glad you mentioned the psychological aspect to this too with masks because, you know, I'm coming at this, which a lot of people is I hate the mask. Yeah. And, and then so, you know, there's something going on mentally. If I'm saying I hate the mask, ah, I'm, just, I'm not going to wear it, taking it off. Uh, but but to but to be clear, you shouldn't the, the same breathing technique, though, when you're wearing the mask, try to get try to keep the mouth shut. Breathe, breathe through the nose, breathe through the nose. So on COVID, you know, how could you not talk about COVID and, and not mention immunity? Yeah. And, and immune function. So let's talk about nasal breathing and the immune yeah. system. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the nasal passages present the greatest opportunity for, fil for filtering bacteria and virus in the air. Um, it, the, the mouth has a couple, the tonsils being part of that system, but there's a large amount of air when we breathe through the mouth that passes right through and goes into the lungs. This is why mouth breathing, if you, if you sleep at night and you're, you know, catching your mouth open, your mouth is dry. Like that's dry air. Your lungs actually pr prefer high, humid, humidified air, right? So starting at the beginning, we have as many hair follicles inside of our nose as we do on our head. Yeah. Wow. So that presents a very unique understanding of something that why would we have that many hair there? That much hair there, right? Well, that is a particle graph. On every single hair that's in that nose, there is a mucus coating. And mucus is is kind of like the honey badger of our like our immune system. It's like it's like the most offensive thing. And although it can be gross to a lot of people, the fa fact is, is it's the most offensive thing there is. And it it instantaneously either collects and allows you to blow your nose, pick your nose, or get things out, right? Or and it also if there are if there are uh, bacteria or viruses that it instantaneously launches a defense of many different Th1, Th2, and beta cells, right? Like that are that are these long-term memory cells that ten years from now, twenty years from now, they know what that was that came in because it came in, and it's why you don't get the same vi virus or the same bug the same time again, right? So all of these things play an integral role through the mucus, right? And so that mucus also can be, you, you would be very shocked as to how much mucus you actually swallow in a day. Like people would be just grossed out, but the fact is it is a lot. And it's an important process because that stomach and the stomach acid instantaneously kills things, right? So things either need to go out or they need to be swallowed. They can't be inhaled into the lungs because there's ver there's not a whole lot of safe things in there and so that's why it's like in a time of like you know covid and what's going on right now respiratory health is so important and the fact and, and the thing is is that the the covid virus the crown of it the proteins hook on to these um hook on to to to, to cells with inside the membranes that line all of this stuff right 
inside the nose, inside the airways, inside the epithelial walls, all of these things. And once that gets in there, if there's not a host of good uh, mucus in there, you're you're more prone to actually probably getting this thing. This is why a lot of people who are mouth breathers tend to get sinusitis, rhinitis. Um, they get they're they're constantly have uh, immune system problems. Meaning people who get sick or get colds quite frequently. You know what I mean? Um, these are all byproducts of things like that, right? <clears throat> and that that's one of the biggest differences that people will experience is that their immune system completely changes, even from an allergy standpoint. The amount of people that come back to me go, telling me about how they don't experience allergies the way they used to or at all is shocking. Wow. So with regards to all the things in the nose, you, yeah. you also recently posted a study about the nasal microbiome yes so yes. talk to us about that we all we love all things microbiome here at my buddy green but the nasal microbiome was a new one for me yeah um and and it, it's new for me in that it, it angers me to a slight degree because it's a duh <laughs> <laughs> it's like of course there's a microbiome in the nose this is where everything's beginning. Like this is where the 26,000, 20,000 times a day or more I'm, I should be inhaling primarily from. So I've got to have good bacteria here. What happened was, is that a group of researchers, this is just a recent study. It came out, I think the 29th of May. Um, they, they finally released it, uh, 2020. Um, a group of researchers noticed there was a difference between family members and themselves and, you know, with sinus, sinusitis, rhinitis, um, common things that we see with inside culture, right? People who deal with a lot of sinus issues. And they decided to start taking a look at this. And what they did was they got a very simple bacteria that is a healthy bacteria, right? That you'll find in like yogurt and they put it into a spray bottle and they started administering it to people who had the sinus issues. They also started taking samples of people who had sinus issues and who did not have sinus issues. And they found in the two different samples of these people that the people who didn't have all of these sinus problems had a very healthy amount of bacteria that were good bacteria in the nose where the others did not. And this also leans into that the amount of antibiotics and things that we go on to inevitably because they kill everything that we're lacking the ability to like, if I have a sinus infection, what do I have? What happens? I go on antibiotics and I shut to shut that down. Well, what am I doing to get that bacteria back up? And that's why a lot of people will experience continued problems within that. But what the great hope is, and what they saw was with them when they administered the good bacteria with people that they, they saw that the bacteria would start to clone and it would start to grow and then they would have to do it, you know, after two or three days again. And then, and they just would have to continue this process to kind of reinsert the bacteria into the nose and the sinuses and that they actually have, that there's a lot of hope that we, they think that we can change this. And that is a duh to me because I understand the gut <laughs> to a large degree and supplying that with healthy bacteria and what goes in my mouth. I love it. So also uh, with regards to studies out there, you know, I'm gonna, we're, we're talking about two and one of them is more about the macro and the other is the micro. And on the mm -hmm. macro level, you talk about the Framingham study, which essentially yeah. said greater lung capacity equals longer life, which I thought was fascinating because we're all talking, you know, they're all, we're talking about telomeres and the microbiome and intermittent fasting and all the, you know, I get 28 vials of blood every quarter, but no one's talking to me about greater lung capacity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of this without under, without even looking at that study. Um, be, and the reason we're aware of this is based on the fact of how important oxygen actually is to the system. So, 
my lung capacity, like, so a lot of people did like kind of took this study as like, well, you know, it's, it's gotta be more than just lung capacity. And it absolutely is more than lung capacity. But the fact of the matter is, is my ability to move. Like wh- one of the things that I've worked that, that Dr. Andy Galpin, who's a co-author of the last book and a good friend of mine at Cal state Fullerton has done work on is studying, um, how, you know, where mortality rates, like what, what parameters sit around mortality rates. And one of those parameters is VO2 max. If it drops below 22, you're pretty much, you can, you can guess you're on the way out. You're about to go down. And that's a fairly low VO2 level. So lung capacity can be predictive in that understanding how I'm constantly moving air. And if I have more space inside of a cage in order to do that now, a lot of people think that it's the lungs itself and it is not the lungs. The lungs, if we were to pull them out and dice them open, right? Just do a dissection. We could stretch those things across a field that's like the size of almost a football field. They're so elastic that the, the tissue, it doesn't actually con- contract or anything, but you need to give that space. And so this would also allude to the fact that exercise and movement are pretty important, okay? And something like yoga is perfectly fine as long as we're actually understanding breath mechanics and movement, something that has been a big problem with inside the yoga community. Um, and, and, you know, it's the same thing with inside the performance world is understanding movement principles and what's going on. And the fact is, is the organization of that spine dictates how well we actually are going to use that diaphragm. We all use it, but it's, it comes down to how well. And so it's really getting to full capacity of that breath and down to the end where we're moving, say an exercise that allows us to keep that rib cage optimal in size, which means my lung capacity is staying optimal, right? So just because somebody exercises though, does not mean they're maximizing that. And I have personally seen, I mean, I can't tell you how many professionals, even world champions I've worked with who are working off of very limited capacity. We're, we're just great at suffering, regardless of what that <laughs> suffering is. Well, it all starts just breathing through the nose every day, you know, what, what I, that's what I love about this practice is it doesn't matter how great an athlete you are, you just start breathing through the nose. Correct. Every Correct. day. And, that's and, it. And, and, and that's that, this is that take back to where I ran into like why breathing became so important. That resistance breathing device, we don't actually need that. We have one. It's the nose. And the reason I'm so enamored with this is I am, I am really, we're really focused on delivering biology back to the human race in that we have missed a lot of opportunities to understand things that have been barked for a long time. Even when we look back on Native American or indigenous cultures in this country, you will see if you do enough research, these people knew this. They lived by it. They understood that the civilized culture and what was going on there, were, there were some serious problems very early on. Why their teeth rotted and were crooked, why their mouth became black. They, I mean, they used to call civilized man the black mouth. Hmm. They, would, they were terrified. They wouldn't let their children, if, if they came off a breast after breastfeeding, they would close the mouth of the child instantaneously and force it to breathe through its nose. Hmm. They were in fear of this. They would sleep with their mouths closed at night. They would hunt with their mouths closed. They were quiet. They could last longer on, like, if you go look at the Comanche Indian, nobody could could hold a candle to how far these people could go and drive over time. And they just, and why, how could they just do that off of eating buffalo? That was their main staple, right? How do you do that just eating buffalo? And it's, well, they're using an energy system is has allowed them to do that and then when you know you look at historians who've documented they're like hey look these people were doing this they breathe this way they didn't their their languages did not allow for a lot of words they look they allowed for potent words 
right? And they didn't speak a whole lot. They spoke very intently when they spoke. Let's right? get back there. Let's get back there. <laughs> uh, I, uh, hey, it's all there, man. <laughs> So on the subject of, of being in stressful environments and studies, you actually were part of a, a pretty cool study that involved a six-week slow breathing program for high school kids. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah, we, um, we had a guy, Scott Russell, who came to us, uh, who's a teacher who was really adamant about doing a pilot study on high school kids and, and, and administer it. What was the best sort of practice he you know we felt could be administered to his students on um for stress you know i mean there it's it's all we we're all aware of anxiety levels being really high and we had um a guy out of andy andy galpin's lab um preston spearmont do his thesis and he and we're trying to get it into irb now on the connection between co2 tolerance and anxiety we we know something's there um and so this study was more was pushing more towards that where let's look at high school kids who are who who are dealing with a lot more anxiety these days administer a breathing protocol that we know they could get through but is slow controlled breathing and based on all research we understand slow controlled breathing is going to calm the brain down and let's see how this intervention can work towards anxiety and Everybody responded the way we thought they were. So this just set, sets up and parlays for us to be able to bring something like this to the surface and then go, hey, <laughs> here's what we really want to do. Like, here's a really big study we'd like to do. So we got we got the easy one out of the way. We, we, we were well aware that all of this was going to happen. But we still want to learn. We still want to critique the work and understand where it's where it doesn't work and where it does. Right. So you took these kids highly stressed. Uh, I'm guessing if you were to do all sorts of testing on them, it would indicate that. And they, and they essentially were able to turn it around all through breathing. Just, just a five, five, 10, five done 12 times. And then, so with regards to the different methods, you mentioned the five, five, like they're all, there's box breathing. There's, oh, yeah. you know, I, there, there's yeah. you know, what, what I love. And I think I recommend so, so often the people who, this is just like a, a new language that was inhale for two, exhale for four. Inhale for two, mm. hold, exhale for four. It's just, it's just that simple for, for people listening who want to get started is have the exhale be greater than the inhale. Correct. And that's how you, that's how you actually allow that parasympathetic nervous system to come on. And, and why is that? Well, real simple. Go watch anybody or any animal when they fall asleep. Watch what happens. You're going to see a shorter inhale than exhale. You're going to see a brief pause up top, and then you're going to see a diminish where there's almost this big, huge pause at the bottom, right? It's not totally getting rid of all the air. It's just kind of midway through the exhale. It just pauses and stops. And that alludes to when we calm down, the breath goes from a, it goes from kind of an equal in and out to an to a shorter inhale, longer exhale. And so what I typically do is a three, three in, pause, six out, and just on their count and just follow that. And if that doesn't help, well, the, and this is where our work really went, is understanding that different protocols affect different people in different ways. And so if I had a group of 10 people and I gave them all box breathing, which would be like a five, 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 right? Like five inhale, five hold, five exhale, five hold. I'm going to probably have a number of different responses to that protocol, meaning not everybody's going to feel calm and less reactive. And that's based on the fact that everybody's CO2 tolerance is different. And the patterning, because of how the neurobiology is set up, is going to have an effect on our psychology. And so that's why we established a breath calculator on our website, so that people could actually do a CO2 tolerance test for free, put in their CO2 tolerance, and they could look at seven different types of protocols and find which ones support which sort of direction they wanted to go. Well, I'm excited to take that test. We have to put that in the, in the show notes. For sure, uh, for sure. So to close, let's go to our, our own mortality. And yes. You've had some pretty powerful experiences and have described death as the, the great equalizer, if you will. And 
which many of us feel more alive in the face of death. And you know from experience, um, you voluntarily went and swam with sharks. And also, uh, you, know, you had this freak accident at a playground where you were almost left paralyzed. And so mm -hmm. would you mind just talking about both instances and, and how you felt and how you ultimately came out on the other side of this? Sure. Um, you know, I've, I've always been kind of, I wouldn't say extremist, but I do like to go fast, but I, I, I want to, I don't want to feel out of control when I'm going fast, but I do. And this is also a metaphor, right? <laughs> I, I don't want to be out of control, but I do understand that with every step of how much faster I go, I'm teetering on the edge of something that is that is right there. And, you know, everything in life has consequences. And it just so happens that the closer to that edge I get, the more alive I feel. But that just means I have to be more prepared. And so, you know, I, I got, I, I got, I, I've had a number of opportunities in my life because of the work that I decided to get involved in and the people who I decided to work with, um, you know, and, and one of those is Dr. Andrew Huberman, um, at, at Stanford medicine who contracted me to come in and help with a study on fear. Um, and I got to do that. Uh, he and I are very close friends now, but we, he asked me if I wanted to come down and get some video footage with them off the island of Guadalupe uh, for great white sharks. And that there was a tag, there were three tags. He was taking one, another buddy of ours who was a, uh, who's a good friend took one and he asked me if I wanted a tag to get out of the cage and swim with the sharks. And I instantly was like, yes. And he said, okay, well you got to get dive certified and you got I was living in Oregon at the time. So I had to get dive certified in a lake. <laughs> and, um, Hey, Ray, I did it and went down. We did this ex, you know, we did this journey. I, I've already, I've swam with sharks in Hawaii before. Um, you know, not great whites. Um, I've swam with sharks. I understood sharks. I understand wild animals to a large degree. Um, you know, I, I, I understand that, you know, they're curious just like we are. But if, you know, if we act like prey, we get treated like prey. And if you step into the, your environment in, in, in a way that they, they aren't cool with, that's the consequence. You know, there is a consequence for everything. So getting out of a cage at 40 feet down below the surface of the water with four or five great white sharks, you understand that, you know, life can end like that. And there's nothing anybody can do. There's just nothing anybody there can do about a great white shark it, it, it is such a massive animal it is so it's like a car and and with 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 just razors and you know why would i want to do something like that because i wanted the experience and i saw that there were guys who actually pioneered something and understood it and created an idea on swimming with them so that they could get footage so everybody could experience that because i realized not everybody's going to want to go get out of a cage and that's perfectly fine like not everybody needs to go shark diving Brian got the opportunity and he did it. And what I got out of it was, is that, you know, these are curious animals. And if you do not act like prey, you won't be treated like prey. You know, um, they, they, it's, it's odd, but at 40 feet below the surface, they don't know how to handle something that isn't running away from them or freezing, right? Which is <laughs> what prey does. And if you, if they do come towards you and you go at them with a camera, they turn away. Because they're like, who, what does that? I don't, <laughs> I don't know anything in my environment that does that. That's not a killer whale, right? So, it was a, it was a great experience. It was, uh, it was, a, I mean, it's, it was a life changing experience. That was where the work came in. I had to control. I had to learn to really control my breathing, specifically. Like we were running data while we were there on everybody. Um, even people who are just staying in the cage. Um, but it was, it was so interesting just to be involved in this and see it happen and understand it and know that through breath control, I was able to manage a lot of the situational stuff going on. Um, you know, and then the, my, my accident happened about a year later after that, where I was just and, and this is life. This is how it goes, right? This is life is consequences. And we don't know when those consequences are going to happen. And, we behave, we're the only creature that behaves as though 
it's just we're 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 immortal to a large degree, and um, you know, and I, I've done that a lot. But you know, just playing tag with my nephews on a jungle gym, I went up a ladder and got about eight feet up and didn't see a bar above that eight foot marker that was at about eleven feet. And so there's a gap, right? And I went up and I went to go cross over something because my nephew was coming at me, but I went directly into a bar at the top of my head, which compressed my spinal cord. And uh, I dropped onto that ladder at about eight feet and then flipped off the back, did a backflip off the back from what they told me. Uh, and I landed on the ground and woke up um, and I was like, whoa. Like I, I just, I, I was like, what happened? But I remember the stars. I remember getting knocked out. And, um, and then I noticed I couldn't really breathe. And I then kind of looked down and my feet were crossed and one of my shoes was off and somehow my hands were laying across my, my body and I couldn't move anything. And so I, I instantly knew that I had probably broken my neck, um, and I, I just kind of looked at it as like, well, here we are, <laughs> not, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I think that's a te that, that's kind of a testament to the work that I had been doing up till then. Um, I didn't feel sorry for myself at the time. I don't know why. And I, and I instantly went into, okay, I've got my nephews, three of them, and my niece, one of them, and then my sister and my ex-wife at the time was there. And I really wanted, like, I didn't want them to have to get traumatized by what had just happened, right? And I mean, I got kids there. I mean, I got 11 and down, you know, down to three. And I, it was just like, can you get, can you get Aaron? Can you get Kelly? Can you get them over here? And then I just continued to breathe through in slow controlled breathing until the paramedics, everybody arrived. And, you know, um, it, it, it turned out that I had, compressed the spinal cord. I did not sever it. Um, I, my arms kind of came back in about 15 minutes, my hands. Um, and then about 40 hours later, my legs started to come through. Um, and then about three days I was able to kind of walk like Bambi on ice. Um, and then spent the, you know, the next couple weeks before I had to go into emergency surgery to have a, uh, anterior disectomy, um, and it, to create space for my spinal cord. Um, because, I had the options of no surgery or surgery and um, the no surgery option was you can't live your life the way that you have, have lived your life. The surgery option was I'm going to live my life the way I want to. And I, you know, I'm not a, I'm a proponent of Western medicine. It has its place and my life is here. Like I get my life the way it is because of that. You know, I'm a big advocate of that. I'm also a big advocate of Eastern thinking and, indigenous cultures and things we've missed to get back to our reality. And I think both played a role in why and how I was able to get back on the jungle gym per se. I, I don't have a fear of jungle gyms. I don't have a fear of, sh you know, going out and, and, and doing extreme things anymore. Um, I felt like I dealt with what could have been a very traumatic instance very quickly. Um, and, you know, I wanted to, sh I, I wanted to learn from that so much that I wanted to be able to understand it for other people. And so that's where my work even went deeper was to really understand the concussion aspect of things and how I sped that process up or what I believe sped that process up. Um, and dealing with that, which was breath control and exercise and doing what I could. So it was a hell of a process, but it was fun, and I turned it into a game instantaneously. I didn't feel sorry for myself. I, was, I mean, what could I do? There was nothing I could do about the current situation. What can I do? I can change my attitude. I can change the way I'm looking at this, and I did both of those things. And I think that's where we're missing a lot of opportunity with inside society right now. I love it. We'll close there. Brian? Yeah. Thank you for all that you do. I am uh, so thankful for you and your work, and I am so happy that you are alive and standing mm. and walking and thriving. So thank you. I, I, I appreciate you guys too, Jason. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Thank you.